I just want Yoram to have to edit a lot. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to the Plants and the Pipettes, Plants and the Pipettes, Plants and Pipettes podcast. That was such a good start. Um, yeah, I'm Tegan. Hi, I'm I'm the Yoram. I am Daryoram. Um, welcome. Uh, we're a podcast. We record weekly. We talk about plants and other things. And also we ramble on about how our weeks are going, which by the sounds of that start are successfully, I would say, high, high success all around. <laughs> Not Ugh. great. Not great. No. Um, no. Not great. No. Actually, it's fine. No. It's just very mo- monotonous. But I just, um, just before we start recording, um, I realized that t- tonight is the the Mars rover landing thing, um, which yeah. I started watching. I mean, I think it will come down while we're recording. So people listening to this, they will already know if it like went up in flames in the Mars atmosphere or if it made its way down safely. Um, Wait, whose rover is this one? Is this China? Or is this one? It's it's NASA. I mean, I'm I'm still looking at Western news, so I would not know about a Chinese rover. No, right? because there's there's like three different Mars missions happening at the moment, right? There's like yeah. a Chinese one, a um, American one, and like UAE also has something as well. Is that? I'm correct? just saying, I, from my media bias, I only know about the NASA one. Um, uh, so. Yeah, that's the one that's coming down tonight. Um, the Perseverance rover, um, and yeah, it's. I mean, I I'm like mildly interested in space stuff, uh, but uh, what I find interesting, or what I just had to think about when I was watching this, is like I wish we could have an event like this for plant science, where I have like a whole mission control room full of smart people, like a dedicated media crew doing a live stream around the world. Everybody's tuning in, watching plant scientists having a milestone happening although i would not know what that could be i mean what what kind of like plant science major event could we have that we could even follow like this i mean i have actually something about milestones that i was gonna talk about in our facts but i can mention it now um (laughs) so (laughs) there was actually like this week or last week maybe maybe last week now um nature had one of their like nature does milestones they talk about one topic and they go through you know a a timeline and say hey here are the the 20 top things or the 10 top things that have happened in the history and there's a milestones in genomic sequencing that's just come out and that's because i think we're now on the 20th year of when the human genome project was completely completed wow um so like when we first got the human genome and i would just like to mention that well done humans but also it was 21 years since the rabidopsis genome was completed (laughs) And I have noticed in this genome, and I don't mean to criticize, but I have noticed that when you go through um, this milestone timeline, I'm just going to post it so that your arm can can see what I'm going to start complaining about. It's nice to give a heads up to the complaining. <laughs> All right, so, so when you go through these milestones, it kind of has like quite a few different events, but then it highlights a few of those events as like particularly important. And they are the milestones, not just like the things that happen, but the milestones. So in 2000, we had Drosophila, flies, happy <laughs> little fruit flies, really important. Um, they got sequenced, um, which... Yeah, important to mention that also yeast and C. elegans. So C. elegans is a little creepy worm. Um, also sequenced. And then in 2000, we also had Arabidopsis thaliana, which is the first plant genome to be sequenced. Um, probably the most important genome that has ever been sequenced. 
of all the genomes. <laughs> not not a milestone, as it turns out. Like again, not criticizing the person who wrote this, but apparently understanding how basically all life on Earth is powered by plants. I mean, not by a rabbit it's a shitty little weed, let's be honest, but by plants, not important. And then the year later, um, milestone one is the Human Genome Project. And like, I'm joking a little bit, but I'm also like a little bit mad that humans are so important and what, plants just fuck <laughs> them? <laughs> How dare you? Yeah, and like I'm, I'm scrolling down, and you have th things like the the rice genome, and rice is such an Im important staple crop around the world, and um, yeah, it's a pretty big deal for rice breeding to have uh, a genome, but yeah, not a milestone in in this list, in this arbitrary like human bias list. <laughs> I think it's I don't think it's arbitrary. I think it's very well thought out, but I do I do think. Um, Plants should get a little bit more respect. I think guys. If, if they would have had a plant working on the list, the uh, the milestones would have be would be very different. Yeah, definitely. I would um, put a word in for the plants there. Come on, you guys, Arabidopsis. Like, yeah, it's pretty special. But but that means um, a good way, like for for a major event, would be to have a countdown to the first. Like, we should have done one for the Arabidopsis genome. We should have had like a live stream to the people um, getting the data from the sequencing machine. And I mean, that's part of it, isn't it? Like, when the Human Genome Project, when they did that, they made such a kerfuffle and they're all like, wow, 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 we're doing it, we're competing, it's a whole big thing, blah, blah, blah. And we just quietly completed the Arabidopsis genome. I'm saying we, I, like, was I born then? Yes, I was born, but, like, I mean, I was a child. Um, like, we just, like, did the science, made it happen, pure beautiful clean i have no idea um <laughs> none of this drama bullshit <laughs> anyway i i wouldn't mind like a big plant science event like this like i wouldn't mind having the live streams and having all of the things going um and then just, i mean you like, know you know with those sequencing like that's sequencing gels right that's like somebody taking 24 hours to read out like four bases and then doing it again and again and again. Like, yeah, and also like... The, I think that's how it works. I have no idea, guys. The fun about a Mars live stream is that we have this like 11 minute delay to get the signal one distance. So sending a signal and getting a response is 22 minutes. Um, so that makes like the whole thing exciting because like you do something and you don't see immediately the results. So what I understand is like we just need like a very slow connection to the people in the lab in plants or in the greenhouse. And so we're like, what is the state of the corn plants in the greenhouse? And then it takes 11 minutes until they hear your message. But also, let's be realistic. A lot of people are watching the Mars mission because there's like the the potential for it to be a disaster, right? Like there's... If it goes wrong, it, it goes wrong by blowing up, usually. Yeah. I mean, Am I wrong? I don't really understand we space. Could, we like, could blow up a greenhouse. Like, we could just be like, if, if they mess up weighing out all of the grains, there is a bomb strapped to the scales for whatever reason. So, um, no, I mean, no person will be hurt, but like the whole thing will go up and it will be popcorn. So, that could make it exciting. The popcorn adds a nice element. I quite like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't. It doesn't have quite the same ring, does it? It's not. <laughs> yeah, I know. Not the same. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just dreaming. Like one day, I want to be 
like we ha we're wearing like mission control headsets now but i wish we would then also be like on in like a darkened room with lots of cameras on us and then um when i listened in the live stream was just like going through the stations and all of them were just saying that sort of their checkpoints were completed so everybody was just like chief of flight go Mission Commander, go. Come and in, Canberra. Canberra, can you hear me, Canberra? Come in, Canberra. And um, I shout just out to anybody who's listened to War of the Worlds <laughs> in their childhood 8,000 times because their father refuses to buy a new record. <laughs> yeah, I just want that. Is, is that too much to ask, um, having a live, live plant science I mean, event? you say you want this, but in reality, you would like... I have been in the lab and the second my supervisor came into the lab to watch what I was doing in the lab, I immediately dropped everything, broke things, you know, exploded things, like my hands were shaking. Um, the most impressive thing I did is I had a three litre beaker, which is quite a hefty beaker. And of course, it was a glass beaker and I put it down on the desk, but somehow I contacted that desk. Like, again... You're talking about like landing a little rover on a planet far away. I was landing a, a fairly large beaker on a desk 20 centimeters away from me. I didn't hit that landing. I somehow managed to hit it on the, the corner of the beaker, which I assume was weakened by years of other students who were just as reckless as myself trying to land those beakers. And it just like shattered that corner and all of the liquid came out, but like in slow motion, right? Like it was just the edge of the beaker. Was, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't lift it up. And I just had to watch as all of my buffer. And luckily it wasn't acid. It was just like, you know, some salt and some water, but just slowly flooded my desk and everything. This is also why they have lab desks, which have little like um edges like raised edges like a plate they have kind of i never i never did the experiment to figure out how much liquid it can actually hold my my desk i can tell you it's more than three liters like i, <laughs> I that's, that's that good to know <laughs> my my favorite big liter mistake or, or like big vessel mistake or, or stressy thing was always um when we would when i was doing like large-scale bacterial cultures and you had like um like one and a half or two liters of like a dense bacterial culture um that's like that's smelly and sticky and there's like sugars and it's bacteria, in it like and also it's bacteria alive. there's something alive it's genetically modified probably and you shake these on these like sticky mats and sometimes these sticky mats would do <laughs> such a good job that you try to lift the thing and it just like breaks off the bottom of your beaker and the yeah, bottom wait, stays stuck what? and then everything we have to we have to explain. It's basically like those glue traps they use to catch like those giant fl cockroaches and rats. So it's like kind of glue and you just like stick your conical flask onto this and, and then, then you have to unstick it. And it, it, it's stuck on hard enough that it can like shimmy like on a belly dancer. Like it's really like going round and round. And then you have to somehow get it off. It's unrealistic, honestly. <laughs> It's I mean, not. you have to exert like some pressure and then you have to just like be gentle and wait like the idea is like with with time you slowly re get uh, released but sometimes yeah old beakers they they are sort of weakened from years of washing and temperature cycles and whatnot and then yeah you just like it the bottom stuck <laughs> sticks to to the thing you have the rest of the beaker in your hand and you have a lot of bacterial culture in your incubator and it's it's not a fun afternoon cleaning this up. Luckily, that, yeah, that happened rarely to me, but like it happened once, like one of my first like lab 
projects that I had on my own. And I had just like this massive beaker and then inside like a, a little box. And then you have to like figure out how to disassemble it, how to get underneath everything. You realize <laughs> like how many crevices you have in such an incubator box. And every, yeah, if you don't get and rid then of you it, also it continues to grow in there. Like you don't want to have like bacteria growing. In there. It's important that you clean it. Yeah, not fun. And then, like, inevitably, when you open it up, you realize that you're the only one who actually has done, like, bothered to open it up and clean it. And, like, clearly, like, you, you open something and you, there's the evidence that other people have had the same error as you, have, but have just been kind of like, <laughs> it'll be fine. <laughs> so you, like, open it and you're like, oh, this is not, this is not just my bacteria. There's, like, a lot of things. And they've, like, found new life. They've probably evolved, you know. <laughs> There could be another PhD project just in the bottom of an incubator, but yeah. usually when you get there, you just go there with your disinfectant and like kill, kill, kill. <laughs> just spray everything down. Yeah. Um. What else this week? Um. I have I have some notes from you saying Bake Off, Yoram. I just like before I was watched the master of the the other thing I watched is um I I started watching Bake Off again. And British Bake Off. Yeah, Great British Bake Off. Uh, I stopped watching it when it w- went away from BBC and they changed hosts and stuff. Um, and it was very nice. It was very pleasant to to watch people calmly, but also very like nervously and in a very stressed way bake stuff in a big tent. I, it's just like one of my my favorite feel good programs because like the worst thing that happens is that like a sponge cake doesn't rise and then they make another one. Um, <laughs> yeah, again, like baking is so it's like there's the Mars mission and then you go one step down and it's like molecular biology with plants and then you go one step down again and it's sponge cakes and it's just like you're kind of still doing science you have to like measure stuff and follow a protocol but failure is not very costly it's like yeah okay people can still eat this but they don't really want to eat this although sometimes when you see like the amount of ingredients they put in there like expensive pistachios or dried fruit or like some other like tonka beans and then they're like oh yeah it's completely undercooked and you can't eat it really and it's pretty much like 40 pounds worth of ca- of of trash <laughs> like i mean again that's hardly mars mission money is it it's yeah sure 14 pounds <laughs> yeah it's it's more expensive to fly to mars okay um i wanted to also mention something that i've done i've also had like a kind of crazy busy week this week has just felt like very fast and very chaotic and lots of putting out fires but this morning I got to do a career talk as part of my work um, where I was talking to like maybe 40 high school students, so people who are at the end of their studies in school and trying to work out what they're doing with their life. And I was just talking Wait, about my career. The, like you then? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was like a bit of a weird element because I'm talking about my career that I'm doing now, which is working as like a science editor. But that job is something where you need to have a PhD in order to do it. So they're like... 17 18 19 and they're thinking about going to university so they'd have to do like four years of study and then two years of master's probably and then another four years of phd and then probably like a couple of years of postdoc that's also usual um before they could come to my job so it was also a little bit weird where they're like oh how do i how would i go about getting your job and i was like um (laughs) there's a 10-step program (laughs) yeah like maybe come back to me in 10 years time but it was really nice. They were super engaged. It was very weird talking via Zoom because, like, the way I talk, I'm really used to seeing people's responses. Like, I am quite, I mean, loud is the correct word. I'm going to use it, enthusiastic, but, like, honestly loud. Um, and the way I, I, um, 
I present, I kind of require a visual feedback so I can know how to like modulate how extra I am. Um, and everybody has their cameras off because there's like 40 of them and they can't all have their cameras on. So it's all off. So I'm just kind of like talking to myself, which is completely bizarre. But luckily they were really, really engaged. And like 20 minutes in, I started getting lots of questions. So I, I sort of had a little bit of background prepared, but then I could go and start answering questions about how to do stuff. And I think like the best part was that I could give some answers that I wanted to about like life in general, which was basically, you know, my theory of you can always change your mind. And if somebody is telling you that you've made a choice and you have to stick with your choice, probably you're in an abusive relationship. Like if we're like, <laughs> it's, I was just like, they're lying to you. If somebody tells you, you can't change what you're doing. It's a lie. <laughs> you can always change. These people don't have your best interests at heart. Um, and I kind of explained that from the point of view of like, when you do a PhD and you've at the end of your PhD, you've basically already committed 10 years of study to becoming an expert in whatever very like niche field you've done your PhD in. And for a lot of people that feels like, well, I've, I've committed 10 years of my life. I now have to continue on in this, in this process. And if you want to, that's fine. But I was sort of saying, you know what, you, you can, you can change. You can always change at any stage of your life. Like there's always options and, even if somebody says, oh, you don't have the right qualifications to do X, Y, Z, like ask somebody else. Again, they're probably lying to you. There's usually like a back door where you can go in, like you can find a way to like bridge courses and yeah. work it out. I didn't really, I don't really understand the British system. I mean, I graduated high school 20 years ago in Australia, something like this, or 15 years ago in Australia. Um, so like the current British system of going to university, I have no idea, but it was yeah. still super fun. Yeah. I mean, it's a sunk cost fallacy that we talked about on the show and also yeah. in other contexts. Um, like one of my motivational phrases for my PhD was always like, don't cling to a mistake just because you spend a lot of time making it. Um, mm -hmm. That is my sort of my, my healthy, my, my advice for, a career in science is like if you feel it's wrong like change it like you don't have to stay on track because somebody says like oh now like the right thing to do is to apply to a postdoc it's the only thing you can do now no like you can do it but you can also do so many other things at many stages of yeah. your career like and also the, on the same line like it's not even if you feel like you have to it's, it's sometimes Just because you're good at something or somebody says, oh, you can do this, you can be good at this. This is also not enough of a reason. You have to also be happy and enjoying it. And yeah. even if you're happy, it's also possible that you can be happy doing other things. So, like, I mean, I'm very pro trying lots of different things and, and seeing how those go. Yeah. She said the most straight edged, boring person ever. But <laughs> 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 you might, what you mean by trying many different things is like many flavors of tea is from knowing you. It's just yes. Yes, but like not the caffeinated ones because that's a little bit too wild, at least not after 4 p.m. <laughs> All right, maybe we should do the paper of the week. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about plant science. It's the paper of the week. Yeah, this week uh, I, I picked a paper. Um, I picked. Yoram, yeah. you picked the paper. <laughs> I picked the paper. <laughs> And. Um, Yeah, I just realized that I, I wrote the notes for for this week's paper while I was already like in a in a Jesus mental state Christ. of <laughs> of I don't know like I was tired of from like a day of childcare um, 
So, can, can I can I interject here? Yes. I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to interrupt, so I'm going to interject instead, which is a classy way of interrupting. Um, so usually our process works that we kind of discuss what we're going to have as our paper, um, and then usually Yoram starts reading it first because his day is structured differently than mine. He doesn't work like nine to five, so he has like a chunk of time in the middle of the day, and we always leave it to the last minute. So Yoram writes notes when he reads the paper, and then I go in and read the paper and like edit his notes or add things that I want to talk about. And this time I came in and I'll admit that I came in very late, like 15 minutes before we were supposed to start recording. And it's, it's just like the last chapter of Ulysses. It's like, it's random. So I'm going to read this out to you. Tomato. (laughs) Quiet, I'm doing poetry. (laughs) Tomatoes. We can't live without them. Very good. They do dry out though. Eventually. Which is not so good when plants dry out. They do that with their stomata. And it goes on basically like that. And there's like every few um, lines, it says, how, I ask, how? But how? Nobody knows. Until now. Guess what? And it's just, I looked at it, I was like, I just don't know what to do with this. I... Yeah, I, I was in a your... weird mental state. It was like very flow of consciousness, but no. your consciousness wasn't working very well, right? Or my consciousness wasn't working very well it's, at the time. It's a flow of unconsciousness. It's it's something. We'll put a few um a few verses of this up on the the show notes, and yeah. you guys can see if maybe there's like a tune that it works to. Um, I I would be surprised, but if anybody figures out like a good tune to sing rap recite this to or the hidden <laughs> message maybe it's a cry from help from like who knows okay so anyway. you're what is the paper <laughs> we know it's about tomatoes now that's something and we talked already about like um drying out because that's what it's about it's about transpiration from tomato fruit occurs primarily via trichome associated transcuticular polar pores um which i is, think uh, yeah yeah it sounds a little bit like a uh, like a mal- like a speaking training exercise, trichome associated transcut- transcuticular polar pores. Um, but yeah, it's a paper from uh, Eric A. Fitchfick, um, Yusuf Fischer, Danny Zamir, Jocelyn K. C. Rose. Um, the the first and last author are from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, and the middle two authors are from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Uh, published in Plant Physiology last December. So tomatoes, yeah. we can't live without them. <laughs> they are very think, good. <laughs> I think we probably have to discuss transpiration first. Joram, what's transpiration? So transpiration is the main driving force that plants use to push, like to pull water f- through their roots, through the entire plants, and then evaporate it at their leaves. And this pulling force transports nutrients from the roots into the leaves. And um is yeah uh, sort of often i think it's called pneumatic like no but i don't know if that's the right word for it but like you have water a water flow constant water flow from the ground through the plant into the air um and that is controlled with stomata like these little openings of the, the of the leaves that can be opened and closed and with that the plants can control like how quickly they pull water through and you can imagine if there's not a lot of water available, like if it's very hot, if it's very dry, if there hasn't been rain for a while, the plant tends to close the stomata so they don't lose water as quickly. But when they have enough water available, they open them up because then they can pull water through 
And you also have like the other effect. The plants also want to open the stomata to let in air because air contains carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide is fixed during photosynthesis. So that's why stomata are very important in the regulation of letting gases like water vapor escape and also taking other gases in. Yeah, I think like it's it's somewhere between transpiration is somewhere between like sucking on a straw because as the water comes out of the stomata, it pulls up other water from the root. So there's that kind of straw throughout the stem of the plant up into the leaf. It's also somehow opening a mouth to breathe. So you open this stomata to like let the air in for photosynthesis and like let airs out. And it's also kind of sweating because you're losing water through holes in, in your like leaf skin. So basically sweating. And this in itself also has a cooling effect um, as our sweat does. So it's kind of like straw drinking, sweating and breathing all at the same time. There's one problem, though. Um, tomatoes are ace tomatoes. Which... <laughs> And you can't smell ace tomatoes without tomato. Yeah. Um, and ace tomatoes is a fancy word for just saying like they don't have stomata. At least the fruit don't have stomata. Obviously, the tomato leaves, they have the stomata to regulate the water flow. But tomato fruit don't have them. But they still dry out. They still lose water through transpiration. And... and also, like they they still have tissue, so they they should still get some gases coming in and out. And I think we've discussed this before. Like cells do need oxygen, and it's quite common that in the middle of fruits there is like a lack of oxygen. It's like um, hypoxic, so like low oxygen. But you know, it can be helpful for them to have holes to get gases in and out, especially when the tomato is green, I guess, and um, it does photosynthesize when it's green. Yeah. Uh, but when they don't have, like, what do they have if they don't have stomata on it? And the main sort of barrier that surrounds the tomato fruit is uh, the cuticle or um, the cuticula. Um, and that's a, a layer of, of waxes or oily substances. Um, they, there are like many different types of wax that can be part of this cuticle. Um, all of them have in common that they are hydrophobic, so they repel water. They are essentially like a rubber membrane around them, although less... A wax membrane. Yeah, a, a wax, wax membrane. A wax membrane. Um, but for, for the tomato, I like to imagine that like, you have sort of this, this balloon, this rubber balloon, where you can't easily get water through. And then that raises the question, but like we see water leaving. How does that happen? I think like for me, what I find quite interesting, there was the fact that these cuticles are present in lots of different plant species, but they vary a lot. So across from like plant species to plant species, there can be a variability of 500 fold in how permeable these cuticles are as far as like letting water in and out. Um, and then like, as Yoram said, the cuticles themselves are made of wax. And if you start doing experiments where you remove the wax, you can then massively increase how rapidly those tissues lose water. So you can like change the water loss by 2000 times if you just like, I guess, like scrub the wax off with detergent or maybe just like mess up the genes to stop them from making waxes properly. Yeah, I wonder how that is, because like you, if you wash your tomato with a bit of soap, you don't immediately like, sort of erase a layer on them and have the raw flesh underneath like these waxes are like more fixed and more stable than if you would just like take an apple and rub a little bit of like candle wax on it and then you just like try to use like some some dish soap to get rid of it 
Yeah, it's not so much sprayed on top of the the apple. It's like part of the the fruit, like integral. Um, but actually, with tomato, there has been past studies which show that if you do like destroy some of the genes that make the the wax, if you even decrease the amount of wax in this cuticle by up to like ninety percent, it's not really changing very much how much water is lost by the tomato fruit. And I think this is something that the researchers were quite interested in because. Tomato fruits losing their liquid is one of the things that we see as tomatoes getting spoiled in the store. So, you know, you see a nice, fresh, plump, juicy tomato. That's what you want to buy. And as soon as it becomes shriveled and dry, you're less interested. So being able to understand and ultimately control the tomato's ability to keep in its liquids and stay like juice and plumpy and attractive. um, That's what we want. And there have been sort of two main theories um, about what that, like how the water loss could still work um, without the stomata there. Um, The first idea is linked to the uh, cuticular. Um, This wax layer could have like different thicknesses. um, And so it could be thinner at some spots or thinner in some species. And um, therefore water can sort of slip through and evaporate. Um, or it could make, be made from different waxes that have like different properties. Some of the waxes might be very hydrophobic, while others might be just less hydrophobic and um, have some uh, ability to conduct water a- across the cuticular. So that's one idea. Like the the layer itself is not like a perfectly smooth, like impermeable uh, wax layer, but instead it's made up of of components that can actually let water through. And the other idea is that you sort of have spots in there uh, in your wax layer where you don't have the the hydrophobic wax molecules, but instead you have um, um, sugar-derived molecules, carbohydrates, and these are hydrophilic. So you sort of have, if you come back to the idea of this like rubber balloon, Uh, part of the rubber balloon are like spots where you have paper in there and if you fill now water into your balloon the water won't go through the rubber but it will go it will slowly seep through the paper spots in there and that's the idea with this uh, the second theory that you sometimes have sort of poking out these um, sugar or carbohydrate spots that then could help water to evaporate and at this point I want to comment that Yaram wrote in his notes who knows which of the two it is. And then guess what? We will know in like 10 minutes. So let's let's look at our watches and see if we can manage in 10 minutes to come to the conclusion. Okay, so the researchers were trying to work out how it is that tomato um, loses its liquid, um, how it gets all shriveled and gross. And so to do this, they went to kind of the old school way, I would say. They compared lots of different varieties of tomato and... Um, these varieties of tomato had different abilities to retain water or lose water. Um, And then they can kind of look at the features across these different tomatoes. So they had like 400 different tomato varieties, including not just um, Solanum lycopersicum, which is the tomato that we eat, but also the wild cousin of tomato, which is Solanum pinellii. And I think that Pimpinellifolium, Okay, it wasn't Pinellia, it was Pimpinellifolium. But yeah, Whoops. but Pimpinellifolium and an, a third one that's sort of an intermediate in there, of which I forgot the name now, I'm sorry. There was something called Nero, Neorici, Ricci, Neorici. Yeah, and that's sort of like an intermediate um, yeah, species between like the domesticated tomato that we eat today and the wild one that people, I don't know, like 
probably thousands of years ago, at least like a long time ago, started to selectively pick the ones that, that work better for their purpose. Anyway, they kind of um, compared all of these like 400 or so tomato varieties and then they found a few that transpired. They kind of found a gradient of water loss and they picked a few from both ends. Um, they picked some that transpired really a lot and lost a lot of water and then picked some that didn't lose very much and one in the middle as well or a couple in the middle or am I making that up? I think they just took the extremes. I think they just took like four water. Yeah, four, four low water, five high water losses and compared them to find out how some of them are better at keeping their water. And yeah, the good thing is now with like the whole point of the screening was that they had like something that is easy to compare um, with like looking at the two ends of it because then... Uh, and they took them across like several like different fruit sizes as well. So like they had someone with some uh, with big fruit um, and small fruit that would lose a lot of water, and the same like some big fruit and some small fruit varieties that would not lose a lot of water. Um, and with that, now they could see like how are these two things different, like these two groups, um, and try to f like correlate some property that they might have with one another. Um, and so they started measuring things. Um, they started measuring, measuring, for example, the cuticular thickness. So how big, uh, like how thick is the uh, wax layer? And they saw that like there was there were variations in that. But across the the in, uh, in total nine different um, varieties that they looked at, um, it did not correlate with the water loss behavior. So some of them had thick cuticular and lose a lot of water and some had thick cuticular and would not lose a lot of water and vice versa so that wasn't it um, then they also measured the cuticle permeance so how good can water get through this cuticular layer um, and also again they saw differences but the differences would not correlate with the observed water loss behavior um, and then they also measured the composition. So they really looked at like what are the components that make up this wax layer. And again, they could not find a, co a correlation between what they saw in the different varieties and how much water they could lose. And so nothing from the things they, they measured correlated, which it always sounds like, like um, a disappointing um, uh, result. But when you have set, like several theories it's good that you can rule things out. It actually makes it easier because then you know, okay, it's not these things. Let's look at other stuff. So what could it be? <laughs> they noticed something. <laughs> so um, the next thing they did was basically use a, a dye, a chemical dye that just stains different um, chemical substances, different colors. And in this case, they used, I think, toluene blue. It's just a blue dye, um, which was water-soluble and when it should show up where the cuticle basically was damaged. But when they dyed their tomatoes, they found that there were kind of blue spots all over the tomato and not just like in weird places where the tomato had been scratched, but like in kind of regular random placement, which looks deliberate. Yeah. And then they looked out closer at these under a microscope. They found out that these dots were, in fact, small holes. And they also found that where the blue dots were, there was often trichomes, which is tiny little hairs that um, grow. So it's like cells that develop into little minute hairs that are found on leaves and also, as it turns out, on tomato fruits. So what they found is that when the trichome breaks off, it sort of leaves at its base this hole or pore-like structure. Um and this structure is water-soluble. 
this is similar to the second theory of having these water-soluble carbohydrate spots in there that water can permeate through. Um, and then they could um, they could see that this this now correlated like the the plants like the the fruits that had more of these trichomes and more of these like pores when they stained them they would lose more water than the ones that had less of these trichomes less of these pores um, and now they found um, the the property that correlated now with the water loss and it also makes sense right if you have the the pore thing where water can transpire through. Um, that this relates then to um, the the water loss behavior. So um, they did a few other experiments, but basically they got a good indication from this that there is transpiration happening through these astomatous without stomata tomato fruit that is happening at these water-soluble spots at the base of the trichomes. And ultimately, this could be a good goal for the breeders who might want to work out how to manipulate how many of these holes or how big these holes are as a way to limit how much the um, tomato is losing its water after it ripens. Although ultimately we don't really know what happens to the fruit during its development if we, we don't know yet, right? If we got rid of all these holes, maybe the tomato is not so happy as it, as it grows. We don't know. Yeah, because there's one interesting thing um, that is sort of on an evolutionary scale is that these trichomes, they are not found so much on the wild relative. I mean, at the very beginning, they looked at the wild relative as well of, of tomato, and this wild relative doesn't have these trichomes on the fruit, at least not in the same extent as the the domesticated varieties that we grow today. Um, and it appears that these trichromes were sort of a byproduct of the selection process. So the obviously the breeders didn't select for more trichomes on the fruit because we don't like this is not a quality that we're interested in tomatoes we don't want it to be particularly spiky with with trichomes we want it to be like nice and fleshy and and uh, aromatic and a good like uh, getting good yield of it but try aiming for all of these qualities that we want in a good tomato um sort of on a as a backpack on of all of these uh, qualities we also got more trichomes on the fruit and more trichomes on the fruit, as we learned now, it means also like higher transpiration and therefore shorter shelf life of the fruit. So there could be a weird trade-off or a weird link that we haven't uncovered yet um, that links some quality that we like in a tomato with the presence of the trichomes. I mean, I think like they didn't see this um, correlation with how quick water loss happens with the size, but it is worth mentioning that the wild tomatoes are like a lot smaller than the, the normal tomatoes that we're eating, right? So yep. it could be something to do with this kind of surface area size thing and getting getting stuff inside. Yeah. So yeah, so that was the paper. Transpiration from tomato fruit occurs primarily via trichome-associated transcuticular polar pores from Eric A. Fick from the lab of Jocelyn Casey Rose. And remember, you can't say ace tomatoes without tomato. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. 
before the fun get, begins, I do want to like preempt any comments. I'm sorry that I can't stick with saying either tomato or tomato. I really cannot help it. I have been, I am raised Australian where we say tomato and I have now been in Germany with a lot of people speaking US English for a long time and where they say tomato and my boss used to say tomato and I'm just completely broken. And as you can tell, like I must have switched like 20 times throughout I'm sorry, you guys. That's that's what happens when you move countries. It it ruins you. And somebody pointed out to us on Twitter the other day that like Yarm had to correct my pronunciation with everything, and I was like, yeah, that's that's how it is now. I'm broken. But I try to do that with like non-English words. I try to do that when like I also like I know a lot I mean, of languages, but I don't know all of them. But for the few languages that I know, <laughs> um, there I can try to suggest a pronunciation. I mean, let's be honest, even if I hadn't been to Germany, my original like language is Australian English. It was never going to be right. Like, there's no way that Australian English is the correct way to say English. Like, this is not... <laughs> I was never going to win this game, you guys. True. But I'm sorry. <laughs> if it bugs you, just think how much it bugs my parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you want to go first with a fun fact after me to talking for so long about transpiration? I wanted to just um, follow on. I mentioned at the top of the show this milestones in genomic sequencing um, where I already complained about them not including Arabidopsis as the most important milestone. Um, but I want to say that there's also a comment in Nature that is came out on the 10th of February. It's called A Wealth of Discovery Built on the Human Genome Project. And I want to give this a shout out, not because I particularly care about humans or the human genomes. I clearly don't. I mean, yay, but also fine. Um, but it's got like just the most incredible visualization. And I think you should all go and check it out. So there's a picture at the top of the page. But if you scroll down a little bit, there's also a video. And it's a way of visualizing all the different genes in the human genome and looking at how... Um, important they are as far as being involved in um, human sickness, illnesses, um, and how many studies there have been on them both before and after the genome was published, and also um, like whether they're drug targets um, or not. So you can see the video. And then also, I think if you scroll even further down at some point, or if you go to um, the article, at some point you can find, yes, there's an image that explains how the visualization works and it's just it's really clever it's a really nice example of visualizing quite complex data which you know if you put it in Yoram's favorite program Microsoft Excel this would be like tens of thousands like hundreds of thousands of cells by hundreds of thousands of cells um but it's really nicely shown here and you can you can see the genes that stand out so like if you look at this you can immediately see it basically looks like a chandelier, um, something like between a chandelier and like icebergs in a ring. Yeah, I, you I can thought see... like icicles, like if you like, yeah, just like drop down icicles from like freezing water in these like spiky structures. Yeah, but they have like a bit above, like the iceberg above the water and then below the water, um, showing how much the genes have been studied, I think, before and after the genome came out. Um but you can see a few genes that really stand out. And one of them is um, TP53, which I knew of as just P53. But it's um, this tumor protein, which is um, known to be involved in, in cancerous, cancerous growth. Cancerous? Cancerous? Jesus Christ. It's this <laughs> it's, it's this tumor gene. Um, it's a gene that when it's defective, 
it invokes um, uncontrolled growth. So it's involved in, in, in the formation of tumours. Um, and that's the most studied. So, yeah, I just want to give her a really big shout out to Alice Krashenko. Um, I actually spent a little bit of time having a look at her and also the group. So it's the Barabasi group and the work they do. They they do a lot of data science and they spend an, a good amount of time and energy and resources on, on doing visualizations and it, and it really shows. So I, I encourage you to go and look into that. And it's just a nice reminder that it's it's one thing to do the science, but to to make other scientists care or even the public care like it's so important to also put that time into visualization and presentation of your science and you can just see like if you go and look at these um these people's work you can see how well that pays off how complex ideas can be not only clear but also beautiful like engaging um if you do it right so yeah i think there's a really nice message there yeah that's that's Absolutely true, and I find it that's a very like not only pretty but really impressive craft that they made up. Also, like the just like thinking, like coming up with the idea of representing the data in such a way is really really cool. Um, I just like sometimes like we read a lot of paper here for 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 the blog and for for the podcast, um, and th there's such a big discrepancy. Sometimes you just get like tables and you get the numbers, and then they get the like the confidence intervals in numbers behind it, and sometimes you get graphs like bar graphs or whatever line graphs and I, I just can tell for myself like how much harder it is if i just if i look at the same data set and one is just a table of numbers and one is just the same numbers plotted as a box um, makes such a big difference and the more complex the data gets the more important it is to give it some sort of tangible um like representation that we can actually work with um, and then sometimes you're like, is there a reason they put this in the table? Like, if they showed it in a graph, would I see that it's not very impressive? Like, is that why I'm not visualizing it, or is it just easier to put it in a table? Like, yeah, I, I didn't want to imply that, but that I, I'm very sure that 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 plays a role in sometimes, like, in the choice of of data representation. Like, you can make or break a story with it, like for the better or for the worse. And um, I imagine that sometimes you would get like a lot of like bars that all have the same height more or less and um, you don't want to tell the story that everything is the same so you just give the numbers and then they vary a little bit and it's much harder to understand that they're all I mean, the same. I mean, apart from everything else, when people are casually reading papers, like they're reading stuff that's kind of in their field but they don't have to read very thoroughly, mostly they read the abstract and then they look at the figures. Like they don't even necessarily read the results. They definitely don't read the methods but they're, they're just looking at the figures. So... If your figures are good, you can increase your citations, you know, get people to care about your science. This is yeah. so important. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's it's yeah. Thank you for showing that because that's really, really cool. I will like later after the show, I will like this will go into my pile of like inspiration for good um illustration of scientific data. Yeah, it's very inspirational. Um, my next story is um about um GMO and cotton. And I couldn't quite, I didn't quite know what to make of it. So maybe we can discuss this a little bit. So the, the story is that there has been a study now published in scientific reports um, where they looked at wild cotton plants, a wild cotton species in Mexico, and they uh, analyzed their genes, their genomes, and they looked in the genomes for traces of GMO, uh, like GM cotton um, origin. Um, 
specifically like genes related that are known to be put in NGM cotton for glyphosate resistance and for insecticide reasons. Like the most famous one is the BT toxin or um, this CRY gene. Um, both of them work by killing bugs that eat on uh, eat the cotton. Um, and uh, yeah, so in in the study they found some uh, within I don't know how big the data set was but they found like a handful of plants where they could see the traces of these genes or like they, they could see the full transgene also in the wild cotton plants and they could then also observe that they had changed um, production of nectar so some of them like the especially the glyphosate gene containing wild cotton plants they would make less nectar and um, the ones that contained the cry gene they would make more nectar and the nectar is very important because these wild cotton plants they live together with ants that protect them from herbivores and they feed off the nectar so the amount of nectar that is produced by the plant uh, has a direct relationship to the the ants like the the plants that would not produce the nectar would have less ants living on them and therefore were more attacked by herbivores sorry can we pause for a second i am struggling so much to imagine coral having uh, cotton having nectar i'm like imagining a visual like if you've seen a cotton ball it's like a fluff inside a thing but I can't even picture a cotton flower, but it's it's not even in the flower. It's extra floral nectar. So it's, they're making, like the, they're exuding nectar from bits that aren't the flower to feed these ants. Oh yeah. This is really cool. That's a good point. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. Like I, there, in, the, in the article, there was a picture of, of a flower of cotton where, with ants on it. And so I thought the nectar would be in the flower. But yeah, you're right. Um, so yeah, there's this like whole symbiosis. There's like a whole tiny ecosystem on the cotton plants with herbivores eating the cotton, the ants defending the cotton because they, they want to get the nectar from the cotton and so on. Um, and now we find these genes from, from um, cotton that we grow on our fields um, that make their way into the wild populations and they change the nectar behavior. Um, they also observed for the ones that had a CRY gene, so the insecticide gene, um, that they had more nectar, but they couldn't find a lot of the plants that had this event, probably because these plants became very toxic to insects because of the this gene product. And um, therefore, they speculate, it's they could not prove it as far as I understood, they speculate that that might have a negative impact on pollinators. And therefore, these um, these plants can't really spread as easily because there's a chance that the pollinator that transports their pollen is killed by the gene product. Um, and interestingly, according to the study, the next, the closest field where this genetically modified cotton is grown is 2,000 kilometers away, um, which I found quite impressive to then find these genes in the wild populations. And I wondered, like, this could be a quite negative story this could be a very neutral story of like yeah i mean we we know that gene transfer happens between especially within the same species there will certainly be some other genes that made it like from non-gm cotton that made it into wild populations because like that's just how stuff works like whenever we we breed a line and we grow it in nature some of the genes that we bred into that line will also find its way into nature around us and where we didn't really care about that for hundreds of years so i don't know like i can't really say what i think of it i just found it interesting um so yeah we're linking to the story at sciencenews.org that has a sort of more um more context to it but also to the original publication um and 
yeah so do you do you have thoughts on that like i don't even know what i how i want to interpret this for myself am i shocked that humans have made changes other than changing things that they didn't expect that to change no no i'm not especially i'm not shocked by that (laughs) but i mean i'm it's weird right like it's not ideal definitely if the changes are unexpected that's how humans have done everything in the world. That's not new for GMOs. Like, again, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but like every single thing we do, it has the intent of like improving our lives, not of improving the environment. So am I shocked that there might be a negative environmental impact, which we don't even know here, but like there might be a change on away from what is natural? No, that's what humans have done consistently. So, but what I got distracted by... (laughs) is what does a cotton flower look like? I mean, cotton has flowers. It's, I mean, eventually it makes these little, like, you know, cotton buds you use, like, to remove your eye makeup. Like, eventually it makes these cotton buds, but, like, before that it has cotton flowers. It looks like a hibiscus. Like, (laughs) it's insane. And then I looked into it, and, yeah, because cotton and hibiscus are in the same family. So they belong to the Malvaceae family, which contains not only cotton, but also hibiscus and like hollyhock so that's they all kind of look quite similar and i'm shocked this is so cool like isn't nature amazing like there's so many things to learn out there yeah and yeah yeah i mean maybe i'm am i the only one who doesn't know what a cotton flower looks like i don't know what hibiscus looks like to be honest uh hibiscus i only know in the context of tea so um (laughs) so i didn't (laughs) notice it sort of in the other direction um Uh, there's one last thing i want to mention on 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 the story that might be interesting if you want to make up your own opinion on this is that like this seems to be like both transgene insertions uh, seem to be a fitness disadvantage to the the wild plants the the ones that make less nectar they get eaten by herbivores and the one that make the insecticide protein and more nectar they seem not to be good at pollinating because they might kill their pollinators so that could mean that potentially that this is something that will just like go away again like it's it's i mean sorry the gmos are killing the pollinators that's not ideal no but it's like if if it makes its way into like a small population of wild type plants and these wild type plants they are not good at propagating because the pollinators just come to them get killed then the plants won't propagate um, because their pollinators are dead and so of course like in the short term there's dead pollinators in the long term there is no more pollinator killing wild type uh, wild cotton because it's a like it's a fitness disadvantage um, yeah but if there's constant leakage from the fields that doesn't really matter right like, yeah like if, end, that, if like that that's not absolutely true like if that happens constantly then that's a problem the, the, but yeah I'm a little bit concerned about insect death. Like, yeah. it's not, it's, it's, look, there are a lot of things at the moment that are really competing in my mind to be like number one existential dread. So I'm not saying that insect like deaths are the top, but it's pretty high up there, like yeah. losing our insects. Um, yeah. I'm not comfortable about it. I'm not happy about it. I, I quite like insects. I mean, I prefer spiders. I feel like insects, we need them. Yeah, yeah. I, that's why I, I didn't want to like bring another doom story. I just found <laughs> it like interesting from a scientific point of view, and also from yeah, a sort of personal opinion about these things point of view because I'm really unsure. Um, so yeah, that's why like maybe like read the article, um, have a look at the original publication, and 
probably also like wait for more evidence or more like f f uh, further studies because from what I understood, this is one of the first times they could show the presence of these genes in wild cotton. So there could be many um, like future uh, results coming up that make it easier for people like me <laughs> to make heads or tails of it. And also, if you don't want doom, hey guys, how cool is it that cotton squeezes nectar out of its non-flower parts? And how cool is it that that flower looks like a freaking hibiscus? Yes. <laughs> Not a single bit of doom, just joy and amazement and oh my goodness, the world is awesome, something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely adjective, right. Adjective, adjective. <laughs> Good, strong, happy adjective. I, I think like... I've just not been using enough positive adjectives in the last few months, so I'm just, I'm confused. <laughs> That's why so you're shouting now positive adjectives into the world so people can positive insert adjective. their own. <laughs> Put your own in there, guys. I know it's hard. Um, yeah. Okay, so I want to mention something that I found out about via Twitter. I don't usually go on Twitter because it is a doomed hellscape. But I went on the other day and I was very happy to come across something that's run by Plante. Um, Plante is um, ultimately from the ASPB, the American Society of Plant Botanists, which is a biologist, not botanist, um, which is the uh, society that runs the plant cell and plant physiology, which incidentally is where our paper from today came from. Um, and they now have a global plant science events calendar, which is super cool. Um, if you are a PhD student or a postdoc or somebody who just is interested in learning more about plant science, they now have a ton of events that you can scroll through. Obviously, at the moment, most of these are online, so it's super accessible. Um, you can also, if you yourself are running events, you can submit events. I haven't looked into this. I don't know if you have to like pay anything, but I'm guessing not. I think you can just put details in there. But also, like I was looking today and I found some things that sounded really cool and I realized that it had already happened like at 5 p.m. today and I was looking at 6 p.m. today. But it's really worthwhile going back and clicking on the actual link because many of these places are also making recordings of the talks and storing them for at least a couple of days or even some months. So like, I'm not sure if you can search a topic. I think you can. Let me just check. Duck. I'm going to search for ducks. Yes, I searched for duck. And on Sunday, May the 29th at 2 p.m., there was an online conference for duckweed research and applications that came out of the Leibniz Institute. So it's really, really cool um, for all of you who always wanted to go to more duck conferences, conference. <laughs> <laughs> duckweed conferences, but never found the time or the money this is just an amazing resource and I've always wanted that there was something like this. I've never seen this before and I've, I've actually talked to Yaram about this. Like, we sh why is this not a thing? Why can I not easily find all of the plant seminars and conferences and especially the free events? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm very excited about that and I will be watching some things soon to get inspiration. That's yeah. That's a very good point. Like I like in one of my last jobs, my my role was to come like make such a list of events for like the German community, um, and yeah, it it took a lot of time, and it was easy to miss some. And once you miss a few, it, you sort of break the whole point of your site. So you have to be very vigilant and very like alert to to do a good job um and so like the bigger it is and the more people know about it the easier it is for the people actually running the thing to learn about the, the events 
Yeah, I mean, this I think is quite new. I'm not sure how comprehensive it is. But if you are yourself running some events, like please have a look at it and consider submitting your event. Because yeah, as Yoram says, we got to meet critical mass. Tell me a topic, Yoram. I'm going to search for it. <laughs> stomata? Uh, stomata. Birdseed and wild plants coming from it. Um, wild plant. I'm going to search wild plant. Wild plant. Okay. There was a webinar about talking, taking your seed to the doctor. Yeah. That sounds pretty cool. That's actually a very um, good uh, idea to do um, because I found a story by Orc- that uh, Orchid Botany wrote up, um, a friend of the show <laughs> that we mentioned a couple of times in the past already, and there's a really cool story now on their blog about uh, the weeds in your bird seed. Um, as it turns out, there has the, uh, recently was a study published looking at what is actually in bird seed mixes, sometimes also called bird feed. Um, uh like yeah these are usually mix- mixtures of like seeds and grains and stuff and like we i always thought of them just like okay th- it's just like a type of food and that's the type of food you give birds but um i mean these are seeds and seeds grow so it's actually interesting to know what kind of seeds they are because if you like put them in your garden and um the birds don't eat all of them you will putting random seeds in your garden that have the potential to grow. And that could be problematic, especially when, uh, as they found out in, in the study, um, that there's palmas amaranth, also called pigweed, something that we talked about in the show, or I think on a, on a blog um, a while back. Um, that's a major pest. And do you remember why, it, why it's such a major pest? Yes, because you can't kill it with glyphosate. So glyphosate is um, Roundup and a lot of it's a very common herbicide and it basically acts by preventing plants from doing a very important essential. I think it's it's creating amino acids, so like something they need to survive. Um, it blocks one of the enzymes needed to create these amino acids. But amaranth has this amazing ability to just like ups its genome and make more of the enzymes so the the herbicide is coming in trying to like ko these enzymes and amaranth is like i'm just going to send in more enzymes i'm just going to like overwhelm the system and then it grows where there's herbicide which means that it's everywhere yeah it's pretty much the scene from matrix 2 when all of the mr smith come pouring in it's exactly that it's just so that yeah and it's just like making more and more and more and like neo can't even deal with all of them and just has to fly away and they stay there and that's pretty much what amaranth is doing and that's you know well you're definitely gonna get hate mail because you just like compared monsanto glyphosate to neo the, the chosen one yes um <laughs> no but um i mean that's that's a problem because when you bring that now into like bird feed that's like spread indiscriminately everywhere um you get these pests and when you get them like in agricultural context but also in a non-agricultural context it's really hard to fight it because one of the like most effective uh, herbicide that we can use um, that's specific to plants can't be used on that anymore and then we have to do other things we have to like burn off the plants we have to use like hot soap uh, stuff so yeah it's not great and there's like a couple of problematic pests that are found like whose uh, seeds are found in these bird mixes it's not only the amaranth um and so, yeah, that's uh, something that's a growing concern that this needs to be regulated in some way. Um, apparently, like I thought you just like, as a producer of this, you get like a clean mix of your like sunflower seeds and a clean mix 
of grass seeds and you mix them together and then you have bird feed. But apparently they're often grown in sort of mixed cultures and harvested together. And therefore you get sort of a random mix from whatever you've been growing there on your on your field. Um, and so therefore it's really hard to sort of sort out um, the grains. I mean, I guess part of the thing that makes a weed a weed is its ability to make just like a bazillion seeds. So in that, that situation, it makes sense that they're just getting in there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, something that you can do, like if you're concerned yourself, is like, for example, baking the bird seed before that reduces the germination capabilities of it um, without destroying too much of um, the integrity of, of the nutrients in there. Um, and it's a nice little treat for the birds. Like, you know how sometimes you have granola and sometimes you have baked granola? <laughs> it's kind of a bit more of a, like a Sunday brunchy feel for the birds. <laughs> or other ways could be to like um, break the seeds by like crushing them before feeding them. The birds can still eat it, still get all of the nutrients in there, but the seeds can't germinate uh, anymore. Um, or another It's porridge. It's it's bird porridge. Birds love porridge. Yeah. You can make like bird granola, bird porridge, or you can just like bake, set up very big plates underneath the feeding station. So like like collectors. So and all of the seeds that they don't eat, they just fall down into this plate and then you can collect it later and dispose of it. I don't I don't know what the comparison like that's like King Henry VIII for birds. Like you just eat and you throw ah! over your shoulders, like throwing your chicken bones back. Like Essentially that, yes. The closest I could come up with, I'm sorry. Yeah, or you just pay attention to what type of bird seed you're buying and maybe try to get something that's mostly sunflowers for example that are harmless or other things um so yeah uh read the article it's a really cool article it's very like fun to read and then pay attention to the type of bird feed that you use so i noticed that yaram's next next fact was actually subconsciously stolen from my mind so i have run out of all facts then no, do I did it. One. no 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 i want you to do it um i'm gonna give that to you yaram no i wanted to give a shout out i saw a talk a couple of days ago again from a free lecture series that is was publicly available and it was by polina volkova and she has been researching the impacts of extreme radiation on plant growth and uh, how do you do this any guesses um i don't know uh, next to a nuclear power plant like setting up a little like greenhouse in the reactor room so close you get yourself access to the chernobyl exclusion zone and you see how plants are growing and have been growing after being like irradiated for many many years in that zone so that was just like super super interesting i think i'll do something on the blog about that in the future but it was a really cool talk and like a, a topic i never thought about and also what i didn't think about is that there is actual practical um, rationale behind understanding these things and that's the relevant to Yoram's interests is the fact that if we do want to go into space at some point and take plants into space we're going to have to work out how plants deal with radiation if there's like you know transport in less protected ways so um, there is some interest there but I just thought it was like a super cool topic like yeah, yeah whenever I think about the biology in this exclusion zone it's quite quite interesting because you have animals living there you have plants growing there and it's it's not safe for humans um but still there's a lot of a lot of life going on there and apparently i mean yeah maybe she was affected saying it, in some way but 
she was saying that it's like just some of the most beautiful land she's ever seen because it's it's so natural and so like untouched um as it were i'm using little like quotes again but like you know there's a lot of wildlife there animals and plants and she was like well it's not there's no like two-headed deers or anything you could originally see some like mutations on the plant leaves like the leaves were shaped the wrong way they were kind of like crinkly and and, and damaged but she said it's like it's it's got that kind of paradisey feel as well because it's it's not yeah disrupted and she also said that um chernobyl the science tv show is not scientifically accurate so <laughs> she didn't say don't watch it but she was like mm, you know that thing where you like study the subject and you watch the tv show on the subject and you get angry because like for me it was when they had i think in prometheus they had a um <laughs> yeah but prometheus is not a good movie in like any shut up shut category. up category <laughs> they, they had a um a microscope where they they like zoomed the, they, they kept on like going down it like closer and closer with the microscope to the dna and then they got so close that they could read the dna code and it was like c c c g a t t t c and it's like that's not <laughs> it's just not what it's that's not how it works guys like well, uh, but that's not how it works guys i think it's the tagline of the movie um i think nothing in there is how stuff works yeah, my my uh, the latest show that I saw where that was very scientifically inaccurate was like something about biohacking on on Netflix. It's a German production, and um, a, a a very wild understanding of the idea of biohacking in that show. So also not scientifically accurate. Cannot recommend. I don't think I don't think you don't have to recommend it. You just have to like be aware that there it might not work for you if you know that subject. Like yeah. yeah. Like, I don't have to think that something's good quality or, like, high literature or has value to watch it. Like, sometimes you can say, this is just entertainment and that's okay. Or you can even say, the yeah, reason true. I'm watching this is to complain about how terrible it is. Like, I'm getting... And I mean, Yarm, I've met you. I know you like to complain. Like, this can be part of the fun. Uh, there's too much complaining in my life already. I have to watch stuff like Bake Off where I don't complain. Where I'm just sitting in awe and just like, oh, how, how did they pull off that sponge? Like, I could not do that. Like, they made these, like, little miniature chocolate rolls filled with, like, a, a mint-flavored cream and then covered in a chocolate um um yeah covering in a i don't know and then like some like white chocolate decoration on it and they like they looked amazing like i was immediately like i want <laughs> i want to make these things so um I really, I care less about your baking now that we're like not physically close. Like I'm not going to benefit from this, obviously, anytime soon. At, at one point, Tegan, uh, we will meet again and then you will profit from my acquired skills from watching a baking I'll show. I'll just like send you a list. And then the first time I went back to Australia after four years of not being in Australia, I was like craving so many of the foods, especially like we have a lot of really good like Malaysian and Indian, uh, Indonesian food, sorry, that you can't really get in, in Berlin. So I basically was like, please meet me at the airport with this takeaway. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm going to shower first, but then I'm just going to be like stuffing my face with rendang. And then I'll go to sleep for a bit. Yeah. And so let's, um, let's talk about the last fact that I brought today um, that you so, um, what is it, graciously... Uh, in such a nice I way. I am great. It's true. I am great. <laughs> you you hand it over to me. And I smell nice. And <laughs> I 
Um, charismatic is like the adjective I want people to say. It's like that creepy edge, you know? Like, yeah. I think it might be because we both found it the same way, which is typing plants into Google News. At least that's how I found it. Um, Honestly, a boy on Bumble sent it to me, so I don't know if that's how you got it, but like, if that's your lifestyle, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's okay, then, um, then I, yeah, then we, maybe they did it. Maybe they um, <laughs> typed that into Google News. Um <laughs> Uh, just just for you. Um, I like how I'm just getting my homework done for me. I'm very pleased with myself. I'm like, I feel very smug about the fact that people now just send me my my yeah, work. I wish I would have that in my life. I don't. Um, so what, <laughs> what experts Bumble did... Bumble is free, Yaram. What experts did is that they um, identified, uh, and that, that's in quotes now, a super plant that can absorb roadside pollution. Um, and that's the experts, that scientists from the Royal Horticultural Society, H uh, RHS, in the UK, um, that looked at different types of vegetation that you can plant next to roads and then analyze the ability to absorb sort of the, the, the dirt and dust and um, pollution that comes from the roads. Um, and they, they looked at different types of shrubs like uh, cotton, easter, hawthorn, and western red cedar. Um, and they, they found one that's the, like, that performs the best. Uh, and <laughs> as smart as I am, I didn't write down which one of these um, it was... <laughs> <laughs> but um, what they say is that the, the plant that's really good at it while well, it's loading my other tab there um, <laughs> you just need like one meter length of this like well-managed dense hedge uh, and seven days and it will mop up the same amount of pollution that one car would emit over a journey of 500 miles so they are very very good at taking up the the roadside pollution sorry really it's what they're saying but you also have to to imagine here um, the mm. um, the pollution that we're talking about here is most like fine dusts, like it's it's the the, the fine mm. like coal particle emissions, um, like uh, rubber um, that's taking off the <laughs> I don't know what the right word is. Like when you when the the wheels are spinning and you have like rubber dust um, and that's settling in there and like these plants they mostly work as like organically grown massive filter systems that physically filter this dust they don't like biologically filter it it's not that they're taking up the the carbon emissions from the diesel engines and turning them into something else that can be used they're just very good at when air passes through them of collecting it on their leaves because they grow in such a way that they essentially are um, like a big cotton filter that you would set up in like an industrial filter system um but in this case it's the but it, does it does it go inside the leaf or is it just like kind of on the edges of the leaf from from the pictures that i've seen it's sort of on the surfaces of the leaves and then they can sort of scrape it or wash it off and then analyze it i mean that's that's got to saturate pretty quickly right like that's going to be i mean a mechanism could be um that it's getting on the leaves and washing down with rain and then you don't have it sitting in the air you you can't breathe it in but it's sort of it gets caught on the leaves washed on the ground and then seeping into the soil where it then can actually be biologically transformed by like microorganisms and stuff and that could reduce like air pollution that it doesn't take it doesn't get rid of the pollution completely in terms of like the particles are still there but you can't breathe them in um, they're sort of bound 
and that's the first step of actually dealing with this kind of pollution but you could like i mean potentially you could end up with like a very toxic hedge like when it works i also i mean it's is it sucking it up is it like suctioning it it doesn't seem to me like how plants work like if it just kind of settles on there that's fine but that's not really cleaning i mean they they guess comp- the error moves they they're comparing like just these the, the potential to filter the pollution between different types of shrub so if you would put like a professional like industrial filter system to it it would probably perform differently not as well as the <laughs> filter system um, but the idea is that you can like grow them easily at like hardly any cost and then you have this sort of naturally grown air filter but it's the same like when, when we looked at like can house plants um, make the air in your room better and I mean, that's that's my problem. I think this, like, plants filtering the air is often an oversell. It's often, yeah. like... It yeah, is. And I think also here, it's like they're not like they're not breaking down the pollution. They're just growing in such a way that um, their, their structure just traps dust very well. And next to roads, that dust is road dust and pollution that is then not put into the air. Um, I know that other people, they, they grow certain kinds of mosses as air filters that work the same way, where it's like, like if the moss would be dead, but in the same physical structure, it would, would work just as well. Like it's not biologically cleaning the air, it's physically cleaning it by just growing in a way that it works like a big yeah, filter. And I think it's the same here for the shrubs. So that's why I'm also... I mean, you know what? Like, let's plant more shrubs. That's I'm pro that. It's a pretty shrub. It has like nice red berries. So, sure, why not? I just, <laughs> it's also with like this story got picked up like, I don't know, 24 hours ago by The Guardian or by somebody originally. And now it's been in like all the news outlets. So I was, somebody sent me this and then I was actually, I think The Guardian didn't link to the original um, article. So I was like looking around for the article. And like in the last 24 hours, like six or seven different news outlets have all published this story. But the publication actually came out in October last year. So it's not like it's a new publication. It's just like somebody's like, this is so cool. And then everybody said it's so cool, which is, is good. But I think often these things do get a little bit oversold. I'm like plants cleaning the air. I'm always a bit like, "Mm, I mean, sure. Like, sure. Yes. Why not? (laughs) No, but that's that's exactly, that's why I also wanted to mention the story here because um, this is not now like some magical plant property that can break down traffic pollution. But I mean, this is also like the problem to me is they, they were selling it as a super plant. And then in the first like couple of sentences, like it's twenty percent more efficient than other plants. Twenty percent is not a huge amount. Like it's a little bit more. Yeah. Like mm. yeah. yeah. It's not a super plant. <laughs> yes. It's a nice plant. It's got hairy leaves. It's bushy. It's got red fruit. These are all good things. <laughs> but are you a super plant? I, I don't know. It probably comes down whether or not it has a secret identity, and we don't know yet. More research is needs to be done. Um, I think that's it with the facts for today. I have one cat fact. Do you also have a cat fact? I will leave mine until next week. Awesome. Oh, I have a prawn fact. Can I say my prawn fact? Say, say the prawn fact first because it ties into my cat fact. <laughs> cool. I'm following somebody, um, a, a Danish comedian, Sophie Hag- Hagenduk. I don't know what her full name is, on Instagram. And she's like occasionally 
posting these kind of sayings, like idiomatic sayings from Danish. And I always love idioms like in, in languages. I'm really impressed when like something that's completely idiomatic that doesn't make sense logically still translates. Like you find that different languages have the same idiomatic way of saying it. I also really love it when societies get a little bit stuck on one topic. For example, <clears throat> German has a lot of sayings that are related to pigs for reasons that we don't understand. Like I am a lucky pig or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> no way to find out. <laughs> I like the this one. This is like to be really, really broke. How do you think you would say you were really broke in in Danish? Um, you can't afford prawns. <laughs> yeah, it's I don't have a red prawn, which like is so. I mean, I guess a lot of Danish food is like like they they eat a lot of seafood, and prawns are like common and a big part of their cuisine. But like it's quite a posh food in other countries, right? Yeah. So to say I don't have any prawns, or like it's I don't have a, a red prawn, but like to say I don't have any prawns, I'm so so broke. Like if you said that in Australia, people would be like, "Are you kidding me? Like eat cr eat, eat me goring like the rest of us? Like <laughs> what are you doing with this fancy prawn lifestyle?" <laughs> yeah. But I, I really like that. And if anybody has good idioms from their country, I also, there was something that came around um, the Twitterverse about different words for pie charts in different countries. <laughs> yes. And it was like that in France, it's called one of the, one of the versions of a pie chart. It's called a camembert. And they're all kind of discussing like different things. And yeah, I, it's always really charming to look at how different languages do different things. I think it's also interesting from like a scientific evolution point of view, because you can see this kind of speciation of different language groups, how they like cluster around different ideas and develop from each other. Um, if anybody has really cool idioms from their country, particularly ones that d deal either with, um, let's say, pigs, potatoes, or plants, the, the three important Ps for our podcast, please do send them in and we'll discuss them. Yeah. Um, and how do you get prawns? <laughs> wow, segue. By fishing them. And um, <laughs> this month, um, February, is actually the fishing cat February. Um, and the fishing cat is like a, a, a smallish cat uh, that lives in, uh, in West Bengal. Um, and uh, this is the inter International Awareness Month Sir for the fishing cat. I mean, <coughs> as called out by the people who care deeply about fishing cats. I don't think... You didn't play the cat fact music. I didn't play the cat fact music. Okay. <coughs> Cat fact. Um. <laughs> so yeah, fishing cats. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I really like that. I really like that theme song. <laughs> yeah, fishing cats um, are these um, these. Uh, cats that like to fish they are living near the water they have webbed feet and are very like good swimmers and they can sort of fish the cat uh, the fish the fish directly from within the water or from the sides and sort of like with their paws pulling it out they have um like auto retractable claws that um, help them to sort of fish um the fish um but like so many cool species in the world <laughs> tegan is um showing me in like a scientifically accurate way uh how these cats actually do it and um like so many good things in in the world also 
um, fishing cats are on the on I don't know if they're endangered, but their habitats are um, cut down. They are uh, on the list of protected animals in Bengal. Like uh, I think the Bengal tigers and some elephant species are also on this list. But unlike the very well-known species on this list, um, the the fish protection measures for fishing cats are less like active or less popular and that's why also what um the the local activists are working on for example they're working together with villages um by setting up photo traps to to take pictures of the fishing cats in these these environments and then they're naming the cats to sort of create an emotional link to the fishing cats by the villages because like sometimes these fishing cats can also attack livestock from um, from the villages and so there's sort of a negative emotion towards these uh, um, towards these cats um, and so they created this sort of image campaign and they also created a goat bank and that's pretty much a setup where when your goat gets attacked by a fishing cat and you lose your goat you get it replaced by this goat bank that's sort of communally funded so there's no or like they say here like sometimes these goats can be very important for the family so it doesn't replace it completely but it sort of reduces the loss a little bit by getting a new goat from the goat bank do you want to say something about the goat bank Deegan? i'm sorry it's 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 actually a really good idea because i think there is this problem where yeah conserving endangered animals often they're endangered because their existence is threatening the livelihood of people so it's, it's really important to have these things but i do find it very funny that like the entire february 2021 we've decided to to dedicate some obscure kittens and also we're naming them and also goats are involved like yeah. this brings me a lot of joy and i again i do think it's important to save a wildlife but like it's fishing cat february like <laughs> i'm sad i didn't know this at the start of february because i would have been announcing it every time i met anybody i mean i don't meet people but like i met them by zoom yeah um amazing i also i really like there are so many again i was talking about this with people the other day because i talk about cats way too much um there are a lot of cats out there like we kind of think about house cats like our pets and then we think like liger lion tiger liger also a thing lion tiger liger tigon um and also like panthers and cheetahs and jaguars but there's this like whole bunch of cats that are like slightly bigger than a house cat and quite a bit smaller than a puma that we don't really think about very much um and it's just yeah it's kind of cool yeah and they're very like far spread have often very important roles in the ecosystems and um yeah i just like it that like wherever you are there's probably a cat nearby and that to me is a good thing um so yeah be aware this month of the fishing cat in west bengal and i think with that <laughs> with that i'm now looking up a list of like wild cat species and i'm just saying that when we run out of favorite plants to do <laughs> every week we can definitely do favorite cats there are a lot of them I think we have to mention that um, last weekend we recorded another podcast, uh, yeah. which is the Plant Book Club. It was created by Ellen Earhart, um, and it is also run with your arm and I as participants, as well as uh, Judith from F at Floral Des Flora L Design. Um, it's also got Melissa, who's from there as well, sometimes involved. And last month we, well, I mean, like 
on the weekend. Our last book was Plants That Kill. It's this kind of mix of an encyclopedia and a textbook and an amazing coffee book that discusses all different plants that, as you can guess, kill um, the way the toxins work and, you know, all these amazingly cool facts about you know, the history of these plants and people who are involved in these plants, like stories of murder and mystery and really great book. Um, so we have that that has now been released. Yoram, did you have a favorite um, fact that you can think of that you can mention now that came from that book? I just have my very boring fact that, that um, the ingredient in tonic, um, the, the, the ch- uh, chinin, ch- chinin, the chinin ingredient, um, the plant that has it is from the same family as the coffee plant. And that's interesting to me because you can drink espresso with tonic water and that tastes very nice. <laughs> Yoram discussed how he went to a hipster coffee shop and he got a drink that had tonic water with coffee, which sounds absolutely disgusting. And he was really disappointed because although it tasted nice, according to him, <laughs> who knows? Um, it, did not, <laughs> it did not protect him against malaria because um, tonic water these days doesn't have a very high portion of the active ingredient in it. Um, yeah. yeah. I think my favorite fact is also something super stupid, which is about Paracelsus. So Paracelsus was um, kind of the father of toxicology and he's the one who first came up with this idea that – a poison is not so much about the substance, but about the amount. So everything is a poison if you have it in um, too great a quantity, including water, as we all know. Um, and I found out that his full name was Philippus Aurelius Theoprastus Bombastus von Hohenheim, which I think like any name that has Bombastus in it is, is super, super cool. Anyway, um, there are so many amazing facts in that book, so you should definitely buy the book and read it yourself. But if you don't want to do that, you can listen to our free podcast that is now available on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. And if you want to talk to us about um, this show, about the Plants and Pipettes podcast, you can reach us on all of the social media. Um, you can talk to me on Twitter. That's at Plants Pipettes. Um, I'm on Instagram. So it's at Plants and Pipettes and also on Facebook. And we also have a website. It's called um, uh, plantsandpipettes.com um, where we publish about once to twice a week cool stories from the world of plant science. Um, and the last story, I think you wrote about color blue in plants, right? Also inspired by the plants that kill. Yeah, it was a mixture between a story about Valentine's Day um, related to our love of the color blue and a story about poisonous plants. And it focused on the delphinium genus, which has some of the most amazing blue plants in the genus. But it also, um, they produce a toxin that can interfere with the sodium channels in your muscles, including in your heart muscles, and thus cause death if you consume them. Um, And then I think it's uh, important to mention here um, that all of the views that we express during this show are our own and not of any people related to us professionally or otherwise. And if we do have wrong opinions or views, come at us. (laughs) Yes, please contact us. Honestly, feel free to contact us and let us know what needs to be corrected. We're open to change. Um, Yeah, the opening and closing music, as always, is Caravana by Philip Gross. That's our show. And that's it. Goodbye. Goodbye.